Let's pause for a moment. Let me pray for us, and we'll uh, charge into this subject. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for being, being victorious over death, over sin, over evil of all kinds. We thank you that you are enthroned as king over all that is, over all that ever will be. And we ask that the words I speak tonight, the thoughts that all of us think tonight, uh, and everything that we are doing here together, we pray that it would all give you glory and cause us to become more like your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Each of the four gospel writers tell the same story, but they tell that same story from different angles, emphasizing different things and filling out the story of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection in ways that continue to feed us many, many years later, 2,000 years later even. We're foolish if we think that since we've heard the story once, that we're good, that we know it. Uh, yeah, we've heard the outline of the story perhaps, but to really hear and obey the story takes a lifetime. The last two weeks we've talked about remembering the story of Jesus. Tonight, I want us to remember a part of the Jesus story that might be easily overlooked if it weren't for the way that Mark wrote his gospel. Not just what Mark says, but how he says it reveals some important things to us. Starting off in chapter 1, Mark tells us that Jesus went to Capernaum, this city on the northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee, and he went to the synagogue to teach. As you know, the synagogue was a gathering place for Jewish people who would hear the scripture read aloud. They might discuss and argue about it a little bit with one another, and they would pray. In this visit to the synagogue, Jesus takes upon himself the role of a teacher, and he is encouraged and even allowed to do so. Verse 22 of chapter 1 is one of my favorite verses in all of Mark. Commenting about how well Jesus did, the Gospel of Mark says this, They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now evidently, Jesus wasn't just spouting words when he went into the synagogue. He wasn't just talking to hear himself speak. Jesus taught in the synagogues more than once, and other Gospels include some of what Jesus said. In the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus read from the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, and he provided some pointed commentary on it. He, Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's really notable in that passage and the one in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus taught with authority and not like the scribes. The scribes were the experts in the Torah, and they were experts in the application of the law. They were the rough equivalent of lawyers in that day and age, in a world where religion and civil law overlapped with each other. So, of course, the authoritative Jesus is obvious to us, 
Of course he's an authority. He's the son of God. He is the resurrected Lord. He's the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom all things were made. That's what we know, right? We have copies of Jesus' teaching uh, in all these four Gospels. We read from them every single week. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Sermon on the Plain. Some of you don't know he preached on planes. Um, okay. It, anyway, uh, it's spelled differently here. On, anyway, we'll keep going. Um, and we have all of Jesus' parables. So we know that he's an authority. We assume that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived and the wisest teacher. But these folks listening to him didn't. They didn't have any reason to hold Jesus in such high regard. They had no reason yet to see Jesus as anything other than an upstanding Galilean Jew who knew his Bible really, really well, prayed regularly, and took good care of his mom. But he had authority. This authority may have been hard for those who experienced it to describe, but it, it was an authority that when they saw it, they knew what it was, and they really saw it. Mark tells us, just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Do you see what happens there? Right there, a demon proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Probably not knowing what he was doing. His words sound a lot like Peter's words from John chapter 6, when Peter and some of the other exasperated disciples uh, say to Jesus, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe Peter picked it up from the demon. Probably not. But you see what's going on here. This demonic entity, however we want to describe it, recognizes the divinity of Jesus. This unclean spirit, this demon, knew in his bones, I have that in quotation marks, knew in his bones that Jesus carried the authority and the power of God. So what exactly is this unclean spirit? I think I'm going to disappoint you in giving you information on this. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information on demons. It provides us with stories, and most of these are encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. It's important for us to remember this. But the Bible doesn't really tell us where they come from. We don't get their backstories from the Bible specifically. There are hints that may or may not, that we may or may not be interpreting accurately. Was Satan God's choir director? Maybe. Um, the Bible doesn't say that specifically. Did he lead a third of God's angels away in rebellion? The book of Revelation seems to imply something like that, but it's not exactly clear. One of the most famous passages about the, about the devil or about Satan comes from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. It's one of the famous source stories, if you will. But that passage probably isn't about, Je about, excuse me, about Satan at all. If you remember, it says, How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. That word son of the dawn is in the King James Version as that great old-timey word Lucifer. 
But the context in Isaiah makes it clear that Lucifer is the king of Babylon. Later tradition makes this parallel with Satan, but not the scripture itself. Jesus does say in the book of Luke that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But did he see it happen right at that moment? Was Jesus seeing into the future? Was he speaking figuratively about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God? Was he looking at Venus, which is another name for this term, the son of the dawn? We don't know for certain about these things. There are other passages that speak about the destiny of the demonic forces, yet scripture is, again, fairly quiet about where they come from and who they exactly are. And I think that is on purpose. There's not so much information that we become experts on the demonic or worse yet, obsessed with it. But still, Scripture is very clear about two things. The first, it assumes that there were and that there are malevolent spiritual forces working against God, working against God's people, and working against God's purposes in the world. And the second thing that we can bank on is that Christ was victorious over these forces and he remains victorious over them. You see, both of these facts are made clear in Mark's gospel in kind of an oblique way. Mark shares more about the demonic forces for us to consider here. So I want you to listen to these passages, uh, and I'll have some of them on the screen uh, for you, and you're going to see something of a theme in what's coming out of the gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, verse 24, which we've already read, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then just 10 verses later, that evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And then in chapter 3, verse 11, there's another encounter between Jesus and the unclean spirits. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. And then there's the famous story of Legion, right? Uh, Legion and the pigs. And by the way, don't worry about the pigs too much. I was in a conversation recently where somebody was been out of shape over that. And I'm like, there's bigger issues at hand here. Anyway, sorry, that, that, anyway, here we go. Chapter five, verse six. When Legion saw Jesus from far away, he ran and knelt before him shouting, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, unclean spirit, come out of that man. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He responded, Legion is my name because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of that region. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the way, all cover this same story. And it's really fascinating comparing the three. But let me just share one verse to you from the Gospel of Matthew um, on this same, uh, just a slightly different take. Suddenly they shouted, that is, Legion shouted, What have you to do with us, Son of God? 
Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What time? What does Legion know that we don't? Some of the best and most important things we learn about Jesus can be learned from what these demons say. In the presence of Jesus, demons are refreshingly honest about things. Again, we may not know a lot about them, but the demons seem to know a lot about Jesus. And here are a few things to hold on to. First, they think that Jesus is the Holy One of God. The devil is in the details. The devil is in the definite article in this case. Or actually, the Lord is in the definite article. Um, they call him the Holy One of God. He's no mere holy man. He's not just a messenger from God or an important person. He is the one. And the demon, demonic know it. Second, the demonic, when confronted by Jesus, assume that the jig is up. The time has come for them. They know who Jesus is, and they suspect, if they don't know outright, that he is coming to destroy them. And the Matthew passage highlights that, highlights the fact that they know that their time is coming. Have you come to torment us before the time? They knew something. Again, I've said this over and over again. We don't know a ton about them, but we do know that they know a ton about Jesus. And what they know about him is useful for us. The demonic reaction to Jesus in the Gospels, generally speaking, suggests that the arrival of Jesus and his kingdom signals the end of demonic power. And you'll notice in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew as well that there are a handful of these demonic conf confrontations in the early part of Jesus' ministry, which I think is fascinating. That's also one of the reasons why Jesus is telling these demons to be quiet about him. Because it's early in the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't want to foment a conflict with the authorities too quick. He's telling the demons to shut up. Don't talk about who I am yet. I've got more to say and more to do. In, in the Gospel of Mark, well, in the Gospels, rather, Jesus is born, baptized, goes to the desert to be tempted by the devil, and then begins his public ministry, which puts us in the place that we are tonight. On the front end of his ministry, there are so many of these power confrontations where the unclean spirits are fleeing from Jesus, begging for mercy, and shocked, shocked by the presence of the Holy One of God. As Jesus shows up on the scene, the demonic realm know that it is the beginning of the end. Exactly how God is going to bring about their demise is probably unclear to them, but they know it's coming. Their time and power is coming to a clear and decisive end. In the meantime, we, here in the 21st century, are watching the demonic realm lash about in their death throes as they await their final end. The demons know this, but do we know this? I think this is an important question for us to ask. Do we know that their time has come and that their time is coming to an end? But what do we do and how are we supposed to think of the really unquestionably evil things that happen 
even today. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension as king over all that is, horrible, nightmarishly evil things, demonic things perhaps, still happen. How do we make sense of that if Jesus has defeated all these powers, yet we still see them thrashing about? It should not go without saying this past week was Holocaust Remembrance Day. The Holocaust is not the only demonically evil thing that's happened since Christ has ascended into heaven. But it stands as an important symbol and an important reminder to us. We can't ignore the fact that evil still exists. What about the millions of other evil acts that have continued? If Jesus really did conquer these forces, if they really knew that their time was up, why does it seem that they're still around? And tonight I'm not going to offer a real simple answer to that. I'm not sure that there is a simple answer to that. But one thing that does affect our thinking, and this is something that I've said many, uh, several times, and that is we live in a secular age. It doesn't matter how religious you are. In the USA in 2021, even the ardent fundamentalist is still a secular person at heart. In this sense, when I say secular, I'm referring to all of our underlying, unexamined assumptions about life. In this day and age, the spiritual realm, whether it's Christ or the devil, demands and bears the burden of proof. And I think it's very true when it comes to this subject. Some of us in this room are convinced that there is a spiritual realm where demonic forces work against God and us. Others of us may not be so sure. But I don't think it helps us to pretend that this spiritual realm doesn't exist. And denying that it exists does not provide an answer to the problem of evil. And neither answers why really horrible things happen, nor does it give us hope that evil will ultimately be done away with in Christ's resurrection and the new creation. But then there remains both what Scripture assumes, the reality of these powers, and that these are not simple expressions of our own sinful behavior. I, let me stress this. <clears throat> All of us are pretty good at sinning uh, without the help at this point of the devil, right? Um, we can do that, and I'm not encouraging us to. Uh, but we need to re recognize and take responsibility. This is why we repent. We, we commit not only sinful acts, but we have sinful ideas and sinful thoughts. Um, but just because we can take responsibility for our wrongdoing does not mean that there aren't greater forces at work against us. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include these exorcism stories of Jesus in their stories of the gospel. The gospel of John, the odd man out, does not include any exorcisms. It's an odd book compared to the other three. It doesn't include Jesus' baptism nor the Lord's Supper, although both of these are revealed in less direct but very rich ways in John's gospel. Likewise, the fact that John leaves exorcism stories out does not mean that he didn't believe that there were unclean spirits. Instead, if you look in chapters 12 through 19, that last large section of John, 
that those chapters carry in them the passion and promise that these evil forces are going to be overthrown or are being overthrown. The ruler of this world is being thrown out, thrown down. And as we read Mark, we see an almost journalistic report of what the demonic realm is doing. And as we read John's gospel, we see this overarching theme of how God is going to set the world right, how he will judge with perfect equity and grace. And let me read to you from John chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. By the way, this is the last week. This is Passion Week, Holy Week, uh, the last week before he goes to the cross. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. I remember in the last, but uh, my, my final year in college, 1991, uh, the Gulf War was taking place in that in that final uh, that final semester of school, um, and it was the first war that we were able that CNN really participated in. So you're able to watch it on TV at night and hear all the news. And um, um, and at the end of as everything wrapped up, and it did not take very long. Um, and as Saddam Hussein's forces were withdrawing from Kuwait and heading back into Iraq, they were blowing up their own oil wells. They were destroying things on their way out. They were completely defeated, mind you. But they were lashing out in these death throes. Um, I'll go ahead and use another Lord of the Rings reference. Um, but if you remember in the story, and forgive us, those of you who have not read it, it's not the Bible. It might be second or third, but it's not the Bible. Um, but Gandalf seems to defeat the Balrog, and the Balrog is plunging into the abyss. And at the last minute, he lashes out with his whip and catches him. The Balrog is defeated, mind you. He's defeated but he lashes out in that last moment. I think what we are witnessing in our time in these 2,000 years since Christ's death, and I could be totally wrong, but I think what we're seeing are these death throes where the demonic, where the evil are lashing out in that last burst of pain, in that last burst of judgment, and they are still wreaking incredible havoc. So how do we live in these moments? On a practical level, I want to highlight one last thing as we close. Our primary mode of resistance to the demonic in our world, our primary mode of resistance is worship. This is because in worship, we tell the truth about who God is. And we tell the truth about who we are. We praise and we repent. 
we pray and we learn. We receive the sacrament and find that we are being transformed by the sacrament. The primary demonic figure in the Bible is known as Satan. His name doesn't mean demon or devil, it means accuser. Satan is the accuser. And I think we are susceptible to those accusations, those lies, until we, as it says in Psalm 73, enter the sanctuary of our God, where we once more learn to live in God's presence. In worship, in prayer, in fellowship, we participate with Christ in bringing an end to the evil in the world. In worship and prayer and fellowship, we participate in Christ's bringing an end to evil. And tonight, as is our custom, one of the ways that we're going to participate is by praying the prayer of repentance as we prepare ourselves to receive that sacrament that I referred to just a moment ago. So I want to invite you to do one of two things. You may remain seated or you may kneel. And as you do so, I want to uh, encourage you to pray uh, with me this prayer of repentance and, and confession. Let us pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all of our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life.